This is A Disciple's Point of View, One Disciple's Perspective on God's Word. My name is Craig and I'll be your host today as we go through a myriad of topics related to Christianity. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Eternal Life 101. Uh, We ended last week with the finishing out of Romans chapter 7. So obviously we're going to jump right into Romans chapter 8. And to be quite honest, we've laid enough groundwork down now to where, honestly, this is going to seem very, very straightforward. And I'll refer to some other verses that are in um, the New Testament that we've already covered. But realistically speaking, given all the groundwork that Paul has laid out, this is going to be very, very self-evident when I read the verses and specifically what it means. Let's jump right into Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is... Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whenever you see anything, well, just anywhere in the English language that refers to therefore, it's always building off of the argument that was already laid down. So in other words, in Romans chapter 7, we see that basically Paul was building the case that the law of God is good. It was actually very good. It showed the holiness of God and what it took to live a holy life. The problem is us. The problem is our nature. The problem is what our minds and our hearts do with God's law. It's not that God's law itself is bad or that it produces death. It's that we produce the death. Because like I said before in previous podcasts, if you tell a child no, oftentimes that child would want to do nothing more than the thing you told them not to do. So (laughs) I've seen many videos on YouTube and whatnot where it's like, you know, the parent will tell the child no, and they'll sit there and stare at their parent while their arm is reaching out slowly towards that thing they were told no to. And that is exactly the way we are with the law of God. Okay, so once a person, building on what I just said, once a person then comes to Jesus Christ and they turn their life over to him, and basically we have that legal transference that we were talking about, that the work of Christ transfers to us and the works of our own life transfers to the cross some 2,000 years ago, euphemistically speaking, but also very much in a theological sense, that we now have that righteous life. And Paul was building on that idea of Romans chapter 7, basically, as to why the law was not going to bring about the righteous life that God wanted us to live because of us. And now Paul is saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what that means is, is basically that we no longer are going to garner the wages of our works. That basically we're going to get something we don't deserve. We're going to get something completely by grace. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So basically, if we say that we're saved, if we're going to appropriate this uh, verse of Romans 8 1, that there is now no condemnation. It is not anything to do with us. It is everything to do with the grace of God. It is everything to do with the mercy of God. So if you're a Christian, you can't pat yourself on the back for anything. You can only thank God and you can know 
that you have eternal life. In 1 John, it says that I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. In verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So again, we build on the fact that we've been released from the law, the relationship between the law and sin. The law in of itself is not sin and death, but because of us, it becomes that very thing, right? So it's not so much that, the, like I said before, that the, the commandment is bad, but it's the factor that the commandment demands such a high standard we will never be able to reach it because of how we are. But how the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer once this temple of our bodies and of our minds and of our spirit have been cleansed and cleaned from the effects of sin by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his shed blood. Like it says in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because God and his nature is such that he demands a life for a life. If you're going to disregard and disavow uh, the very nature of God, he demands a life for that. Because if you think about it, we are living in a sea of oxygen, a sea of air. I know it's made up of different chemical compositions and whatnot, but for the most part, we think of it as living in a sea of air and we can breathe and we take that for granted oftentimes because it is such an emphatic fact of life. But it's true. Many of us have food in our bellies. Many of us have places to live. Many of us have far and above conveniences. I'm recording this on a laptop computer, which is so commonplace now. Most of us have computers in our pockets, i.e. what we call our phones. If you're listening to this podcast, I know you probably do. So we have been given such great gifts from God himself, and oftentimes we impugn the name of God. We sit there and we even say he doesn't exist. And we wonder then why he demands a life for sinful actions because ultimately even if we're not necessarily sinning against god going out and saying that god is evil and all this and that we are still by our own actions saying that god is bad but because of whatever private sin that we're committing that's why god demands a life that's why he demands the shedding of blood for any kind of sin right verse 3 in chapter 8 for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So basically what all that means is, is basically, like I said before, building off of what chapter 7 so beautifully laid out for us, that sinful flesh created the sin, but that Jesus is God in the flesh, he was able to perfectly live out the requirements of the law. He perfectly kept the law. In him was no sin, as the book of Hebrews then dictates, right? And tells us that Jesus didn't commit one sin in his life, not one that would taper him or taint him at all. Even though he was in sinful flesh, so to speak, he wasn't completely of the flesh, because God was his father. In the Gospels, it, it uh, tells us basically 
that Mary, who was his human mother, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she was found a child. I don't think that this was some perverted, weird sex act that, you know, obviously that God committed with Mary. I think it was very much like the creation account. Basically, he spoke the universe into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was. Before that, nobody had a concept of light was. Light and darkness are concepts of God because he was the one that first basically came up with them and told us what they were, right? So in my mind, what happened probably when he she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, uh, God just simply looked at that egg and said, be fertilized. And somehow it imbued that egg with the Holy Son of God in Jesus, basically lived out everything that we humans have lived out, right? So basically from start to finish, Jesus was perfect. He was absolutely perfect. So basically he became our righteousness because of that. Everything he did effectively whenever that faith transference happens is basically we take on that perfection that Jesus lived out in the flesh and God now sees us us imbued with that. And by his grace, we are cleansed of our past sins. And this is basically what Paul is talking about, that the righteous requirement of the law is then fulfilled in us because it was first fulfilled in Jesus. And then we have that legal transference happen of a righteous life perfectly lived out by the Christian because Jesus did it for us. And likewise, our sinful actions then are transferred to Jesus euphemistically 2,000 years ago. And this is why I believe you really can't get off into the weeds here into a little bit of a rabbit trail. But this is why I believe there is no true free will, so to speak. The scriptures are very clear. Ephesians chapter 1, those he predestined, I believe in uh, later on in the book of Romans, I believe in this chapter, chapter 8, later on towards the end of the chapter, it talks about who, those who were predestined. And Jesus even himself said, you cannot come to me unless the father who sent me draws you and I will raise him on the last day. So it's this factor that God has marked out in his mercy, because once we sin, we are fully abdicated to hell. Okay. We then in a way have separated ourselves from God and it is God Basically, the ball is in his court, whether or not he's going to forgive us or not. That ball is totally in his court. And if he is merciful to even one person, he has been infinitely merciful to all because none of us deserve this. That is why I think that verse in Ephesians is such a pivotal and great verse that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not anything to do with us. We did not bring about our salvation. Our free will had nothing to do with it. It was all about God's mercy. Now, I will say this. I believe, and I believe that this could basically be supported by the scriptures, that once God illumines our heart to believe, our free will does kick in because we all have that self-preservation instinct, right? And if we see we're racing towards a cliff, we don't want to fall off the cliff and die, so to speak. And I know that I've shared my personal testimony that whenever I would think about eternity and all this and that prior to becoming a Christian, I had this impending sense of doom. And I believe that was basically God 
marking me out for salvation. Now, obviously, we persevere through life and through difficulties, and basically the scriptures do make it clear that those who persevere to the end will be saved, not somebody who prayed a prayer or whatever, or walked an aisle, or lived out as a Christian for a few years and then punted their faith. You can't really honestly say that they're saved. They had a form of godliness, but basically denied its power, ultimately those who persevere until the end are saved. And so that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. But basically it it underscores this idea that basically that Jesus came in the like, likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh because he basically lived out the perfect requirement of law. Hence, the uh, uh, John the Baptist could sit there and look at Jesus and go, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because under the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you had animals that were sacrificed in places of humans just simply because there needed to be blood sacrifice. So ultimately, it came down to the blood of the Son of God who would give himself and not shrink back away from that. Okay, so let's go on a little bit further. Uh, I believe we talked about chapter. No, I'm sorry about verse 5 we ended with verse 4 so let's pick up with verse 5 for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit so this is probably best illustrated in galatians chapter 5 where paul basically reiterated a lot of the same thing and i'll re go ahead and just read that so it underscores this point just a little bit further so in chapter 5 of galatians starting in verse 16 it says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to one another. Uh, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not into law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. He basically goes through a list here of everything that are works of the flesh. And those are pretty obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, fits of anger, drunkenness, orgies. Um, and Paul says, um, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul juxtaposes in verse 22 what a person's life is characterized by when they walk according to the spirit. He says, but the spirit of I'm sorry, but the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So. Paul is making that argument that, again, that by walking according to the Spirit, your life is going to be characterized by those fruits of the Spirit. Now, that's not to say that every single action you do is characterized by that, because we know that in Romans chapter 7, that Paul talked about that uh, that crisis that is within our bodies that the good that i want to do is not what i end up doing but what i is evil is what i end up doing i believe that paul basically was building on that argument and on that reality realistically that we all still struggle with this this is all not easy jesus did it easily because he was god in the flesh but we have to surrender to the spirit daily and sometimes it's really hard sometimes it's really hard to set your mind on the things of god and we'll just pick up in verse 6 based on what I just said. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So basically, 
you know, a good practical exercise if you're a Christian. And even if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, probably a great practice for you to do is if you're tempted, go in a particular direction. Let's say you're tempted to tell that lie. Let's say you're tempted to, to take that pin home that belongs to the workplace, i.e. lying and stealing and, and the like, right? Or let's say you're even tempted to look at pornography. It's so prevalent on the internet. It's really easy to get a hold of. Let's say you're, you're tempted to do that, which is adultery, right? You sit there and you start thinking about the things of God. Maybe you open the word. Maybe you start praying, right? Because then you're setting your mind on the things of the spirit. And the things that one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. And you find that you're recentered oftentimes. And sometimes it, it, the, the temptation may be so great, you need to go to an accountability partner. And you need to say, hey, brother, I'm, and, and by the way, if you have an accountability partner, make it somebody of the same sex or gender as you. Because um, another guy, if you're a guy, is going to understand a lot more of the things that guys go through. And like it or not, in this world, there are men and women, period. That's the way God sees us. That's the way God's word says things are. So that's what I'm going to reference, right? So our, our world says differently, but also the world also approves of sin. And the world also says there are multiple ways to God, and that is not what the scriptures teach. So I'm going to teach that there are just simply men and women, right? And that's it, period, end of story. So if you're uh, a man, you probably need to have an accountability partner. That's a man who's willing to show you some tough love, right? Who's going to call you out for your bad behavior. And likewise, women, get you a woman who's a godly woman who is going to call you out is going to hold you to the standard of Jesus Christ, right? Because sometimes we are weak, and sometimes just even setting your th mind on the things of the Spirit is hard to do. And we are our brother's keeper, so to speak, right? You know, as as um, Cain uh, kind of mocked God and said, am I my brother's keeper in Genesis chapter 4 after he murdered his brother, right? And yeah, we are our brother's keeper. You know, in the, under the new covenant, we very much are. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 7 of chapter 8 of Romans. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And this is very true of somebody who was a non-Christian for many, many years, that being obviously myself. You would try and try, and you would fail and fail and fail, Right? Because your mind is not geared towards that direction. You have no power available to you because the Holy Spirit may influence you here and there, but you're not filled with the Holy Spirit as the Christian is, right? You're not sealed with the Holy Spirit as Ephesians 1 so declares. So we are not going to be able to fulfill the things that God wants us to do. But in verse 8, those who, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no way at all that you can live out this Christian life without God being in you and God working through you and God being in you as we went over in chapter 7. Like I said, basically in the book of Romans, Paul lay, um, lays up foundations for us, foundational truths that build on each other, right? In each chapter, it was building, 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 building until we have a fully built house, that is the Christian who is realized in Jesus Christ and who has taken a hold of salvation by faith. In verse 9, you, however, 
Paul is now juxtaposing that, basically saying, if you're not of the Spirit, or if you're not walking according to the Spirit, you cannot please God. You cannot even focus on the things of God. But Paul is juxtaposing back to you because his audience is the church at Rome. He was already addressing Christians. But obviously, to make that juxtaposition, he has to compare them to what they were before, which is non-Christians, right? Those who lived according to the flesh. So in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And this is basically, Paul is not saying that any Christians out there, they may not be filled with the spirit. There are some who believe that you have to have and you have to request the spirit of God to do a second filling where you're then filled with the spirit and speak in tongues and all this and that. I believe that is a fallacy of and a distortion of what the scriptures teach because in ephesians chapter one paul says having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit it doesn't come from any kind of prayer you pray later or it doesn't come through a secondary filling it comes through an immediate belief that jesus was who he said he was and that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead and by that we can have eternal life. So basically, Paul is saying that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ within you, you don't belong to Jesus whatsoever. So in essence, there is no Christian life without the filling of the Spirit, right? So basically, Paul is just making that final assertion that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you, if you are truly a saved person, right? Because you can't live out this life. You can't resist sin and you can't go about recognizing sin because a Christian will, according to 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 2, verse 1, you will sin in the flesh. John said, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? That's 1 John 2, verse 1. So we have a heavenly lawyer, so to speak. But you can't even arrive at the place where you recognize you sinned without the Holy Spirit living within you. And that's basically the assertion that Paul is making. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of light, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So basically, we, we, we understand that this body is still flesh. Once you become a Christian, you don't mystically become something alien, something weird, something different. The world might think that, but you fundamentally still look the same. So in theory, you could have a non-Christian and a Christian standing side by side. You don't necessarily know which is which until you start seeing the fruit of their life. And that is the fundamental way that you see what a Christian is really like, right? You can look at one person over here and see what their life is like, and you can look at another person over here and see what their life is like, and you're like, wow, that is, that's, that's the, the life lived out right there. That doesn't mean they're perfect whatsoever. So that's what Paul is basically saying here. The body is dead because of sin. We know that, but the spirit is life. So if the spirit of God is living within us, the world sees that's life. That's good, but they still hate it at the same time because they're set on the things of the flesh, even though they recognize that the Christian life 
is fundamentally a good thing, they don't want it because that means there's something wrong with them and they don't like that. And that's why oftentimes the world is hostile to the Christian life and the Christian believer. We're seeing that a lot more and more in our own world and in our country of the United States of America today and, and most of the West, most of the West being like European countries, Australia, basically anything where I guess Christianity is the fundamental and foundational force, which I believe that in the Western culture, we're basically shifting away from that mindset and we're going towards a more worldly mindset, which as Paul has beautifully illustrated for us and we fundamentally know as Christians is death. The, way, the ways of the flesh are death, period, end of story. So we're going to finish this podcast today with this last verse, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's huge. So this life that we live isn't something that we do in of ourselves. It is not, not anything we do through our own energy. So anytime you're tempted to sit here and say, well, I need to start living the Christian life. I need to do better. Really, realistically, all you need to do is yield to the spirit and God will live out this perfect life within you. It is so easy yet so hard at the same time. It is so profound and basic, or I'm sorry, it is so basic, but so profound at the same time. And that is how God is basically. Um, he is eternal, but yet he stepped into time and space through the person of Jesus Christ. He is three in one, yet one God. Or he is three persons, yet one God. We see that littered throughout the scriptures. And I have a podcast totally dedicated to the doctrine and idea of the Trinity that we have formulated a phrase for. Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the principle is littered all across the scriptures. And if you gut the scriptures of the Trinity, you gut the scriptures of pretty much the scriptures. It's, it ceases to be the Bible, pretty much. Um, so basically wrapping this up, I want to end with a verse in the book of Galatians chapter 3 that so vividly really illustrated what this life effectively looks like, lived out. And something that was finally clarified to me as, this is what you need to do, Craig in order to live the life. And it is so easy. It is realistically so easy. So in Galatians chapter three, verse three, I'll, I'll read the first two verses of Galatians so that this basically will make some degree of sense. And you got to remember that Paul is combating a false teaching that cropped up in the church of Galatia, which was in Greece, ancient Greece. And he is trying to basically keep them to the simplicity of the gospel instead of going off into the weeds about this false gospel. In verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Or I'm sorry, or by hearing with faith? This is the key verse that I want to really point us towards and end our podcast with today. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This was pivotal to me. 
it's not that we don't do works, right? It's not that we don't seek to do good works, but we don't try to earn and live out this life, this eternal life by our own works and by our own power. We do it by yielding to the spirit of God daily and sometimes minute by minute. Um, and if we fall down, if we sin, that we come to God, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. First John one verse nine. Right. So we don't live out this life except by faith from first to last. And if you're a non-Christian listening to this right now and you're wondering how in the world you appropriate this life to your, for yourself, I want you to listen to the next segment that's coming up here in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart by simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The apostle John wrote that when he was pinning first John, he says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at disciplepov, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V 
at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.